Hey, it's A24, and this is the A24 Podcast. For this episode, we bring you a conversation between two visionary filmmakers, Paul Schrader and Sofia Coppola. Paul and Sofia have much in common as writer-directors who've built careers entirely outside the studio system, each making movies only they can make. We were excited to bring them together to talk about Paul's new movie, First Reformed, and what it's like to be a filmmaker today. A warning, if you haven't seen First Reformed, you'll want to skip ahead exactly two minutes when Sophia asks Paul about the movie's ending. Here's Paul Schrader and Sophia Coppola. All right. Um, now, Sophia, I'm Paul Schrader. Uh, I'm Sophia Coppola. Have we met? I feel like I've met you as a kid. I remember Yeah, I think the last time and... I met you, you were about as yeah. half, half as tall as you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember you coming to... I met you at a lunch in, the, in my adult life. Because um, I remember asking you about American Gigolo, and you told me that John Travolta was originally supposed to play the part, and I love that movie, so I was excited to ask you about that. But we, so yes, but I, I know you more from growing yes. up as a as a peer of my father. Well, a little younger. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, and Mishima. And yeah, Mishima. So Francis and George produced Mishima, and we did the Polish up there in San Francisco. And of course, I have all those ties with Tom Luddy. So that, in fact, I was just back up there. Oh. So there's a lot of interesting things to talk about. I think the most interesting is how does one get a movie seen today? Yes, I was happy to hear that. Um, that at age 24 they were saying that your movie your new movie is doing so well and people are going to see it and i'm always curious about well, well, and i love the theater experience of going to well this is what i've found around 10 or 12 independent films a year uh rise above the crowd and are noticed by the general public and this is out of possibly 15,000 or more and you know how do you get to be one of those 10 is a very big question and I've started to realize in the current marketplace, which of course changes every year, is that first you have to pass through the gatekeepers, which are the festivals. And then the next stage is running the gauntlet. And what I found with First Reformed is we passed the gatekeepers, Venice, Telluride, Toronto, New York. And A24 bought us out of Toronto. And then there was a whole period of special screenings, screenings for groups. I did a lecture tour of various seminaries, small festivals, uh, overseas festivals. It's like a full-time and, job. And, and then in March, David Frankel, who you we just talked to, called me into a meeting in this room. He said, he said that they were going to change the release pattern and they're going to change the dates, change the theaters. And all. We were talking about the campaign. And he obviously saw that I looked very concerned. And he said, uh, no, Paul, he said, this is good news. This is a good news meeting. But my point being, it was almost six months after they bought the film until they had run it through enough gauntlets. To figure out when they're going to release it. Or how much push they're going to put behind it. Right. Yeah. You know, just because you make a movie, just because someone buys a movie, you know, doesn't mean anybody is ever going to see, see it. it. <laughs> yes, I know. I feel like that... Yeah, I feel like the last time I made a movie last year, half of the effort and work is the year of just trying yeah. to get it out there and get people to see it. So it's always a mystery and a struggle. And particularly if you get caught in award season, like Greta did, where, you know, it's from Labor Day to April. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how anyone... Yeah. It's a full-time... But that's exciting when movies, yeah, break out. Cause you're right, it's so rare. 
Yeah, I mean, and there's almost no way, you know, you can predict. You can do certain things, but, you know, if a movie hits the zeitgeist, it's just luck. You know, we hit the zeitgeist with Taxi Driver all those years ago. Yeah. What, what degree of calculation was there? None, none to my knowledge. It just happened. Yeah, it just happens. Yeah, now it seems like a, there's a lot more put behind it. And this whole kind of campaigning, and that didn't exist. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, you were asking me a minute ago, uh, your friend, she was editing? Uh, my friend Tamara Jenkins was editing at... I think Post Factory, yeah. and she said she met you there when you were working on First Reform and that you were also editing a movie with my cousin Nicholas Cage. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, what happened was about six years ago, I was, uh, had a terrible situation happen, and they, um, they tried to kill me, or at least that's how it felt to me. They took my film away, and uh, Nick and I and other people disowned it, and they dumped it, and you know, I sort of descended into uh, despair and alcoholism. Terrible, yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, this is how my career is going to end, with a fiasco. You know, this, is, this, is, this will be my, the enduring taste in my mouth. And what I, was the film called? It was called Dying of the Light. So then I, I was still in touch with Nick, and I said, Nick, you know, we should work together again and get it right. And I'll get this stain off our clothes, meaning primarily my clothes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's going to get That's a terrible feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so then a film came along that I thought he would be good for, Dog Eat Dog. And I said to the people, I think I can get any cage for this, but you have to give me Final Cut, because I won't go to him without Final Cut after what happened last time. So I said, okay, you can have Final Cut. I can't believe that you wouldn't always be able to have that. Uh, uh, I never felt I needed it before. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, in the 70s and the 80s, you were always dealing with movie people, people who like movies, people, yeah. uh, you know, you would disagree. Sometimes the movie would get better or worse, but it was... was uh, there were movie people. Yeah. Now, the whole group of people in the film business who not only don't go to movies, they don't even like them much. Yeah. And, uh, and so how do you deal with these people? And then, then also the final cut starts to mean something. So uh, we, we made, I made this Gonzo film with Nick and uh, Willem Dafoe, Dog Eat Dog, my sort of Tarantino film. And it was just a completely outrageous film. That sort of brought me back to life. And then I started thinking about what can I do now that I have this final cut thing? What we have I've always been afraid to make. And I said, that spiritual film. You know, because the economics were never right. You know, it was always a financially irresponsible film to make, and that, you know, somebody would try to take it away from you at some point. I said, but now we can get the budget down low enough so that it's responsible. And now I can use my final cut to do nothing. You know, mm-hmm. before I used it to be outrageous. Now I can use it to be quiet. Yeah. And uh, so that's how that came about. Well, at this stage, so I went to that editor I'd used on Doggy Dog because while I was editing that, I realized what I was doing wrong with Time of the Life. I realized I needed to be much more aggressive with the editing. And this editor, Ben uh, Rodriguez, is a student of Hank Corwin's, who did Natural Born Killers. So he's in that school. And he was... And he edited First Reform? Yeah. And I said to him, he, he had a Doggy Dog, and I said to him, I'm going to hire you for First Reform. But I don't need you for first form. You know, it's a very simple job. But we'll get through it in probably seven weeks. Then I want you to re-edit. Oh, no Dying of the Light, which I don't own legally. 
and we'll just edit it without permission. So we were editing both simultaneously, so one that's cool. very, very quiet film, and one that's completely gonzo film. And of course, I don't own it, so I, 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 I had a little walk around, I, I put it in my archive at UCLA Film, and Harry Ransom in Austin, and here at MoMA, so if you, you know, call them up, you can we see We can see it. the new version. Yeah. Or you can go to uh, YouTube and just type in Schrader Rotterdam, and then you will see an hour and a half lecture I did about the whole process with oh, around wow. 25 minutes of clips of the old version versus the new version oh, wow. and how I had done that. Will you try to get it re-released? I, I don't own any of uh, Also, um, I, I offered to do yeah. all of this for free. Yeah. And I was turned down because uh, there was a lot of bad feelings. Oh, no. <laughs> That's terrible. And uh, so, but anyway, do that felt... Uh, and so now I find myself in the opposite position, which was after... Dying of the light. I said, this is how it's going to end. Now, I'm after First Reformed, I'm in the position of saying, well, this is how it should end, which is almost as intimidating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you start thinking, well, you know, if this is my last film, no. it's a pretty Did good you really film. approach it as your last film? No. You, or every project you have to think. <laughs> well, <laughs> that no, I, not really. Yeah. I mean, but after a certain age, you know, you see often Tom yeah. Petty's dead. You know, did yeah. Tom Petty plan to make that his last album? Right. Uh, you know? <laughs> but this is a movie that you've always wanted to make? Uh, it's a movie I a always... A subject matter that you've always wanted to It's a movie I, I always didn't want to make. Right. Did you grow up with religion? Yeah. I'm a, a product of the Christian Reformed Church, so that would be uh, Westside Christian, Grand Rivers Christian High, Calvin. And before I got involved in filmmaking, I wrote a book of theological aesthetics called Transcendental Style in Film. And it was that. about Ozu and Bresson and Dreyer. How, how did you learn about Ozu? Uh, well, I learned about Ozu from Don Ritchie. See, well, what happened was I had this theological education, and then I had this love of the movies. And all of a sudden I started seeing in specific films a bridge between my sacred past and my profane present. But it wasn't a bridge of content. It was a British style. And as soon as I made that revelation, I said, you know, you can connect these things stylistically. Uh -huh. uh, content is kind of immaterial. So I wrote that book about it, and um, I was published in 72. And I've uh, rewritten it, uh, bringing it up to date, and that's coming out in two days. People tried to connect my films with that book, and uh, I said, no, 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 that's not me. I like those films. I've written about those films, but I myself am, am too intoxicated with sex and violence, uh, action and empathy. You know, these are not elements in the Transcendental Toolkit. You know, you will never catch me, you know, on that thin Bresonian ice. I'm not going to go out there. I'm going to fall, fall in if I go out there. And that's the way it was for decades. And, uh, and then three years ago, I was giving Pavel Pavlovsky, the National Society of Film Critics Award for EDA. So when we were talking about spirituality in movies, talking about my book, talking about the new economics of film, and I walked uptown and I said, it's, you know, are going to be 70 next year. It's time now. It's time to write that movie. To you face. swore you would never write. <laughs> the face, the scariest. <laughs> and once, actually, I made the, the decision to cross that bridge, it, it became relatively easy. Uh, one of the things that had always been holding me back was the feeling that I would 
walk into a spiritual arena and fail. And that to me seems like the worst of both worlds. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather fail in the secular arena. <laughs> but once I said, okay, you know, you're, you're 70, you've got final cut. You, if, you can, if you're not going to do it now, you're never going to do it. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's always good to do something scary. But I, I feel like and, um, that there's a similarity in that character, obviously, to Travis Pickle. Were you thinking about similar spirituality yeah, I mean, at that I, time? Yeah, I mean, what happened was is in March of 1969, I was a critic for the LA Free Press. I went to the Los Feliz Theater, the lovely theater, and saw Pickpocket. In that 75-minute movie, two things happened. One is I realized that there was a contact between spirituality and cinema, and it was a contact of style. And out of that came the book. The other thing I saw was this kid in this room writing in a journal going out committing some crimes, writing some journals some more. And I was living at the time with a group of UCLA film students who were making a biker film for Roger Corman called Naked Angels. And I, and I was a film uh, student and not a filmmaking student. And I thought what they were doing was just so declassé. I was very elitist. Mm. And you know, I said, we, the film, Critic community will tell you when you make a good film. <laughs> and, and I'm sure they thought the same way. And then I saw that film and I said, wow, I can make a film like that. <laughs> you know, maybe there is a place for me in this, in this trashy business, you know? I could make that film. And then three years later I wrote Taxi Driver, which is that film. You know, the guy in the room with his, with his yeah. journal goes out and and, and moving on some kind of personal arc. And so now, 50 years afterward, those two seeds, which were dropped into the Petri dish at that same yeah. morning. There's and, a connection. And finally connected again yeah. in this film, first yeah. performed, where you have that style and that character coming around. Right. Now, I've, I've used that character a number of times. Uh, you know, when he was young, he was lonely and a taxi driver. And then he was um, narcissistic and a gigolo. And then he was anxious and a drug dealer, life sleeper. And then he was superficial uh, and a society walker. And now he's finally a minister and he suffers from despair. So they're all the same, yeah. or different sides of yourself? <laughs> yeah, well, different, it's just a progression through life, Yeah. you know? Um, and uh, every time you sort of come to an interesting position, that character sort of swings around again. I don't know if you have... It meets have... you in a different incarnation. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know whether you have a similar character. You say, uh, you know, it's time yeah. I take a look at her again. Yeah. Yeah, I always wonder... Usually when I'm starting to write, I don't know why I'm drawn to it, and then afterwards I start to see the connection. When, when you start, did you say it's time to revisit that character, or he kind of creeps up on you? Well, um, here's how it happened with Light Sleeper, it was interesting. I, uh, I was 40, a little over, and I wanted to do a uh, midlife movie. And, uh, and I must have thought about this for almost a year, going through all the cliches, and the college professor, and the guy quits his job, becomes an adventurer, and so 
I could not come up with a decent midlife metaphor. <laughs> and then I was asleep, and in a dream at about 5 a.m., uh, a character came to me, and he was a, a drug dealer that I used to know, named John. And he came right smack up to my face. And I woke up in a start. And I thought, wow, that was vivid. Well, I haven't thought about him in a year. And I said, what were we talking about? And I thought, oh, he was asking me about the movies. And then I realized, wow. this is my guy. Oh, wow. He, I couldn't find him, so he phoned me. That's and great. I got up right then and there, started making notes, uh, tracked him down that very same day, he and his boss. He, he ended up being played by Willem Dafoe, his boss by Susan Sarandon. And it was the same taxi driver guy, the guy with the journal, the guy, yeah. only now he's in the back seat of the car with envelopes of drugs rather than the front seat of the car. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. And now here he is again <laughs> yeah. in, in a different stage of his life yeah. and, and dealing with modern, what's happening. Yeah, yeah. so um, it takes amount of living to return. You know, you can't do a Woody Allen with those kind of characters. You can't write about them every year. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. And and did you have Ethan Hawke in mind, or um, did you find him after? No, I, I mean, you know, normally I... Uh, do you think of actors when you're writing? I try not to. Do you? I do, because it helps me to oh, picture actors. I, Certain I, I, parts. I, I think it's just the opposite. Because if you're sitting there typing, you're writing a speech, yeah. and you're, now you hear Denzel Washington say it. Say, wow, right. that's a great speech. <laughs> no, it's not a great speech. Denzel, it's just they would make it good. It's <laughs> a great act. And so, so I, I, I try at all costs not to think of an actor oh, that's because funny. it. Uh, I'm started, cheating. I've been know, cheating. Yeah. And about uh, about halfway through this, now there is a certain physiognomy of a, a suffering man of the cloth. You know, Claude Ledoux and Country Priest or Montgomery Cliff and I Confess. So you start thinking of actors who fit that bill and Jake Gyllenhaal and Oscar Isaac and Ethan. And Ethan was 10 years older than the other two. And he was just starting to get some very interesting wrinkles in his face. You know, the, some of those guys, it takes a long time for the boyhood to go away. Right. Like Griffin Dutton was like 25 for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and uh, so uh, and Ethan is all of a sudden now uh, becoming much more interesting in that way. And, uh, and I always thought he would be very good as an internalized actor. Yeah, I feel like I've never seen him. Like yeah. That. His personality is kind of, he has a kind of goofy personality. But he, he, you know, it's a sort of a post hippie kind of attitude toward things. And so the first time I met with him, I said, uh, you know, this is a, a lean-back performance. You know, whenever you detect the viewer getting interested, start leaning away. You know, don't give it. Don't do, you know, see how far you can get away from them. You know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, it felt, it felt very um, like we were having to lean forward <laughs> to try to... And that's sort of a, what it is with these... Um, a spiritual kind of thing. You, you can't really push anybody into the mystery. All you can do is guide them. But the, those steps they take. They have to take. Yeah, they have to take. 
you know, you, you can't play spiritual music or, or have <laughs> a spiritual plot gimmick and people say, oh, I found God. Yeah. No, no, no. When you, when you decide to touch the mystery, it's because you've been put in a kind of a tight spot by the artist. And one of the ways you can go is to jump forward. And, uh, and that's what that whole notion of transcendental style was about. How do you stylistically corner a viewer so that they're he, trapped he, he wants to jump forward, yeah. you know, jump into the mystery. Yeah, no, I felt like it was, you're in an uncomfortable state watching it, but you can't look away, and it's, it's, it's an interesting state that's unusual in movies, I think. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, going back to uh, Taxi Driver, that's something that I learned then, and, and there's two devices. One is the narration, which I've always loved, particularly when it's written, it has to be written before it. And, and I regard it as intravenous feeding. I'm going to put a tube in your arm. Right. And I'm going to start giving you nourishment. And you, you won't be able to taste it, and you won't be able to feel it, but it's, started, it's going to fill up your body. When it starts to take effect after Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, and that's one thing I'm going to do. And the other thing I'm going to do is tell you a story from only one point of view, a monocular story. So you're seeing this one character go about his days only. Well, you stay with him the whole time. You don't ever see no, anything not, without him, right? Whether it's you know, Travis Bickle or whether right. it's this guy. So, so after about 45 minutes of hearing this guy talk and seeing only what he sees, you are now identifying with him. How can you not? Right. You know, if you're still in that theater, you are identifying. <laughs> He starts to go off the rails, just a little bit, then a little bit further, and then a little bit further, until you come to the position where you are still identifying with someone, but you no longer think he's worthy of your identification. And that's the crunch, that, uh, that, that's a little crevice. You, you can lay down someone's skull and, you know, and, and cause them now, and who knows what the viewer is going to do at that point? I mean, because you can't predict that. But you know that you'll put the viewer in a very uncomfortable place and they're going to react somehow. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you don't see it coming. Or you start to see clues of it, but then before you know it, you've gone farther than you expected to. And, and like, wait, when did that happen? Uh, yeah, yeah. So. And I was surprised how violent it is for such a um, sparse... Oh, there is no uh, violence per se. It's but, obviously an anticipation of violence. Yeah, but there's like the one scene in the woods, like it's very, yeah. yeah. Sh uh, yeah. I don't want to say. But, but shock, the, there's, it's shocking, it's not. Yeah. But there, there again, you know, when you withhold things from people, and, uh, right. and uh, let's take the case of music. Right. So now you're, you see a scene and a kid's lying in the snow with his head half blown off, and there's no music. And you know, part of you as a viewer say, come on, play some music, tell me how I'm supposed to feel, you know? Oh yeah, I hate when, I hate when, the, when they overdo the score and it tells you how to feel. Yeah. Or it leads you too much. Yeah. And uh, so that, uh, that's another way to sort of create unease, is, you know. But, um, but so, I, I, I want to ask, um, so you, you said you're writing now? I am. I'm kind of procrastinating and avoiding <laughs> writing. But yes, I, I, had a, I had something started a couple years ago that I put away and now I... I took it out to try to come back to it. Have you ever 
done that where you abandoned something and came back to it? Or? Actually, I, 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 I wanted to do a film 20 years ago with Arnold Schwarzenegger, a remake of a Bud Becker Western. And, uh, and then he decided to run for governor. And uh, I never got the rights, but, but now I might get the rights back. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> um, so it still interests you? Well, it's 20, you know, it's 20 years old. It needs to, now it needs to be uh, uh, updated. Yeah. Uh, all I know for sure right now is I've got to do something completely different. And, you know, people have come up to me after the, this film and said, well, when are you going to make another film yeah. like that? I, I said, I don't know if I ever will. After every film, do you go through that period of searching and then... Well, I, I, I sense that you and I have this in common, which is part of the fun of making films is seeing if you can do something. Yeah. I've never done this before. You know, uh, I did that little uh, Kickstarter movie with Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, yeah. Part of the fun of it, we did Lindsay Lohan, a porn star. Yeah. Part of the fun was, can we do this, Brett? Yeah. Can we actually pull this off? That is, that is half the fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, can I make a Tarantino movie? Or, you know, can I do this kind of movie? You're setting up a challenge for yourself. Yeah. And because so often I go to the movie theater and I look up at the screen, I say, you know, how, how did they stay awake? Yeah. Well, these people have made this movie 10 times now. Yeah, oh yeah, I <laughs> know. It's so, it's so great when you see something you haven't seen a million. But, so how did you start with, I know you decided to face the fear of doing something in this subject matter, but then did the character just come to you and well um, and it feels so much about yeah, the current yeah well this state of and you know that character I've written about before and and the first thing I did is started rewatching the films of this ilk that I thought had worked that were uh, effective and just you know checking through the landscape and watching about uh, two dozen films and in the you, church and the yeah. priest group. and you start you know slow cinema and you start picking up things you know and a lot of what we do is you know simply theft yeah. or assemblage you know and so and the secret of of stealing is that you have to steal around you know, right Dad or grandfather always said, steal from the best. So yeah. But, yeah. but you can't keep going back to the same bed. You can't keep going back to the same 7-Eleven. They're going to catch you. Right, right. <laughs> so, so you can go to the best, but you can't be the same best. So you go to, you know, you go over to the floral shop. And, and you mix them to together. Take them. You go over to the gas <laughs> station. Then you go over to that little hot dog stand that nobody goes to. Right. <laughs> and then you put them together. And, uh, and that's all any of us ever do. Yeah, no, that's true. I was talking to my dad about the conversation, and he said, oh, I just, I saw blow up, and I wanted to make a blow up, and I, I had no idea. But I was like, but, yeah. yeah. And then, then, and then the Palmer saw a conversation, and he wanted to make <laughs> blow up. Yeah, that's so funny. So then you, I'm curious also about how your writing. Do you, like, I notice I can write better at night than during the day. Well, do you have any rituals? I, I, uh, I'm a binge writer. I don't consider myself a real writer. Uh, I think a real writer writes every day, <laughs> but I, I know I That's write. what I've heard, and I can't do that either, so that makes yeah. me feel better. You just sit down until the idea is done. And um, I used to be a night writer, uh, and but that was always fueled by nighttime additives. Oh. You know, the caffeine, the nicotine, the cocaine, the alcohol. And then I had children, and 
took almost a year to learn to write during the day. I'm so glad because I've been <laughs> struggling with this and, yeah. and no one ever talks about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I used to uh, you know, start writing about 10, 30, 11, and write till 5, and boy, you know, it would just buzz along. But gradually, I, you know, I started doing more drugs and making less pages. So at the beginning, there was, wasn't many drugs, but there was like 15 pages. And then there was a lot of drugs, and there was like two pages. <laughs> and then, then you're written, and you say, oh, am, am I writing? Am I taking drugs to write, or am I pretending to write in order to justify taking drugs? <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> and uh, so then I went on the day shift, and that took a while. Uh, and now I'm still on the day shift. But, um, what, how many pages can you do in a good day? For uh, average. Well, I tend to write very fast. And the way I do that is I outline and tell the story. So you know where you're going. You write out the whole story. Uh, do you know what the end date? Do you know where? Yeah. You know? I, I can tell you what will happen on page fifty-five and a half before oh. before I start to write oh, because it's all in my outline. Oh, okay, I never and, do an outline. So and I've done this, and I use the outline to make an oral presentation. I tell the story, and every time I tell the story, I redo the outline. I tell the story, redo oh. the outline. Then at some point, you start. Put it in projected page counts, you know. Mm. So now you have a feeling of what page you're on when this when this part of the story kicks in, and you do that enough. If you can tell somebody a story for 15 minutes, uh, 45 minutes, and you they don't. listen, you've got a movie. <laughs> uh, and what happens if you tell a story enough? Uh, one of two things happens. One is you tire of it and it right. dies on you, and that's a good day. Because you've saved yourself from writing something that was going to die anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or the other thing that starts to happen, which it says, I'm sick of being told. You know, don't tell me one more time. Write me. It's time now. Right. And, and then the writing comes, you know, quite quickly. Um, and, uh, and, and occasionally I have stumbled into this process where I had two-thirds of the story, but not the last third, and I thought it would come. Yeah, and didn't? Didn't come. I always feel like I'm rushing to get to the end of that, yeah. By that yeah. part. That's interesting. And and would you say this is a happy ending? This? Um, well, that's too simple. Well, I can't well, really I mean, say. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you think? Well, I don't want to... Well, I don't want to give away anything. Well, yeah. No, I wasn't sure. No, I think it's mixed. That's what I think that's more interesting than, yeah, you don't want to have one or the other. Of course, it's mixed emotions. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know what the ending is. Yeah. I, it's, it's done. So is it he going to be, be okay? It can be read in one of, either one of two ways. Well, one is that some miracle has occurred and his life right. has been spared. Right. The other is equally, in my sense, optimistic, which is he drinks the Drano. And he's on all fours, and he's throwing up his stomach. Oh, he's imagining. And God comes over to him, uh, who has not talked to him for the whole movie, and says, Reverend Tote, you want to know what heaven looks like? Here it is. This is exactly what it looks like. It looks like one long kiss. Oh. <laughs> and, and that's the last thing he sees. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I took it as... It wasn't. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure whether it was real or, or yeah. not. So I wondered if you. Yeah, yeah, and, then, and you the, decided. Yeah, we were tweaking it in the editing. You know, when people see it, trying to get, trying to make it like half and half. So okay. whenever I showed it, I'd say, "Is he alive or dead?" When I'm trying to get uh, about the same amount of hands to go up for both. Oh right, but do you? I don't. Want, maybe we shouldn't say it on our <laughs> podcast. But should. Do you have an idea which side it's more on, or are you going no, both no. ways? <laughs> no, whenever people thought, more people thought it was one way, I shift the editing so it's uh, the other uh, way, so that, so that I didn't know. Right, 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 okay. <laughs> and uh, because uh, a number of people have interpreted the ending of Taxi Driver as a fantasy, and I don't have a problem with that ending, but it's not what I intended. And so this time, I, I actually you intended. Played with that. Oh, that's interesting. Are you, so now, are you traveling around with the film? And yeah, I've been a, um, on tour. I think uh, uh, just coming down down to the end of it, and I've decided, uh, you know, just to take this victory lap. You know, uh, but unfortunately, okay. but now the victory lap is coming to an end, and. Uh, uh, no, time to get back to work. Face the, <laughs> yeah, you have to face a blank page again. Yeah. Do you find it, um, I mean, I know it's nice when people are interested so, in your work, but do you find it annoying to have to explain what you're, what you're trying to do instead of just having people watch it? Well, um, if you've hidden enough nuggets in there. Do you have something uh, to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> you can sort of say, by the way, you notice, you know, open up that door, you know, and... Uh, so, you know, there are things in the film like that, uh, that that very few people notice. But when you call their attention to it, it's actually they more interest. Oh, yeah. And were you thinking about making something to respond to the state of well, things now? Or did that just kind of seep in when you were yeah, working on it? Yeah, it's kind of hard not to. I right. Mean, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, for thousands of years, human beings have been having a hypothetical discussion, you know, why are we here and what will be, become of us? And now for the first time, that discussion is seeming not so hypothetical. Right. And that, you know, the possibility that the species as now constituted will not see the end of this century. That's a, that's a lot of gravitas. Yes. <laughs> but was that in your, in your mind when you were starting out with this character, or he kind well, of... Well, I, mean, I, I knew that the... Would have to be about... Yeah, I mean, because you, you, you have, you know, the sickness unto death is what Kierkegaard called it, which is despair. And so he's, he's in religious despair. And, but that despair is somewhat selfish, and it is forbidden by the church's suicide. And St. Augustine said, you know, suicide is sin. However, he said, unless you're Samson. And then it's resurrection because you're a martyr. So you can see this guy, and he's, he's very, very tempted by despair to go into suicide. And then he, he catches this virus whereby he sees himself becoming a martyr. And now that, that's really sick, too. But um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about how many ways you can <laughs> approach that. And do you, and, and from here, do you, do you know what this will lead you to next, or do you take a time to 
I'm, I'm, I'm toying around with three things. Well, one is a complete style piece, and another is a contemporary western, and another is the scariest one, which is uh, about my brother. Oh. Don't you always have to do the scariest one? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, I, I, I wrote a film about my father. I wrote a film about my mother. And I think they're two of the weakest films I did because there was not enough metaphorical distance between me and the subject, you know? Oh. Whereas if I could make them a taxi driver or a gigolo, I, I got enough distance. So they were directly their stories? Yeah. Which film? Well, uh, Hardcore was about my dad, and Light of Day was about my mom. Uh, but you, but it was too directly, you felt? Well, yeah, because they were characters, you know, father. And now the idea I'm writing about my brother is about a brother, and I, I keep thinking, maybe, you know, am I too close? Am I too close? Oh, that's interesting. And... Uh, so, uh, and I came to this idea because my brother died about 10 years ago, and now his uh, widow is dying. And she was a hoarder, so we had to clean out her house. And she kept, kept everything, and I went through like 100 or 50 boxes. And I found what I was looking for because um, I never saved stuff. You know, I've, I've thrown my life out the window like a greasy rubber. But my brother saved stuff. And from 1966 to 1970, I wrote him every other week. Oh, and wow. I wrote him everything. Wow. Every movie I saw, coming to UCLA, going to film school, meeting Pauline Kael, wow. all of it, you know? And he had all those letters. Oh, wow. And now Film Common is going to Let's print them, uh, you know, one a day for a while. Oh, wow, that's so great. But I was just thrown back into that. And so then I started coming up with an idea. But, the, but I, I stopped after 40 pages because I, uh, I was just getting too close to it. And I, it wasn't good enough. I could feel it getting thinning out. So what I'm going to do now is back up and start at the beginning again. Maybe they're not brothers. I'm not sure, you know. Or maybe there is. But how to take something like that without it being so direct? Well, yeah. How, how to keep it from being, or, you know, maybe I need to put an external event in there rather than just family, family, family. Oh, yeah. You know, and maybe there, there has to be an outside danger. Or, oh or uh, a mysterious death of right. some sort. That's just good warning for me to keep in mind, because everyone's always drawn to writing about their family, so yeah. <laughs> to make sure not to fall in the trap of yeah. something too close. Yeah, although I did like that film they did here at A24. Did you see that film, Krisha? Oh, yes. Now that's all that an actual family. That was incredible. You know, yeah. That, I mean, I was just thinking about And that was, the main character was like, was she the aunt of the filmmaker? Yeah, or? they were they were, they were all family. With, with a handful of exceptions, that was an actual family. Wow. They were, you know, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was really fascinating to watch. Yeah, I, I, I found it a movie that I just couldn't imagine being able to do, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just looking at your uh, filmography, and, you know, you because you're from a different generation, all this stuff gets mixed in, you know, the, the music and the, the little bit, you know, I, I'm pretty much straight from the screenwriting generation and then to the directing generation, and I haven't veered from that. 
But I, I, I see all the temptation. You, because you, you did an opera. And... Oh yeah, I did. But um, just because I was asked to, and I felt like I couldn't say no because it was terrifying. But it was in in the live theater, which I'd never done. Yeah, I was asked to, really? and I, <laughs> I was terrified. I wanted to say that, and I didn't do it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to, but I'm glad I did because I felt like it was scary. And I learned something. But um. But are you a musician? No, I've always liked music, and and um, there are a lot of musicians in my family. My father's father and his uncle are conductors yeah. and composers. So, um, so my dad's uncle knew the, knew La Traviata very well and and explained it to me. And I just did it to to do something scary and challenge myself. But I wonder, like, you have such a um, strong visual style. Obviously, you're a director, but from a writer, I just, I just think of like well, the it way. It took me a while. Uh, the first two films. I just illustrated. It wasn't until the third film. Which, where was the American Gigolo? In no, the third one. Oh, it has such a great style. Yeah, and that was because of this guy, Scarfiati, Nando. Oh. Uh, who I had brought over from Bertolucci. He had done Conformist and Last Hand. Of course. Yeah, the sets, everything, the look yeah. of it. So and I just, I just put myself really at his feet. But you knew you, you needed... I How needed did you that. think to combine that? And I... Uh, I and I, I needed a, a, a master, a mentor, and um, and I had, I had seen conformist, and I heard that he and Bertolucci were having a little bit of a falling out over Novacento, so I went over there and invited him to come to the U.S. Oh. And uh, and we did those two films together, and uh, we became uh, very very good friends. Wow. And you know he changed he. he, he he gave me eyes. The two people right around that same period, Charles Eames and Scarfiati, because I was raised in a... You knew Charles Eames? Yeah. Oh. And uh, I, um, I was raised in a church environment where if you had something to say, you used words or songs. You don't use images. Oh, interesting. You know, the, the churches are just four white walls. Right. And... And, and that's frivolous or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I always thought ideas were words. And it took me a while to learn that images are also ideas. And Eames was, uh, I was doing an article, as a critic, I was doing an article on Charles. And I started hanging out at 301 Washington. And then my wife at the time got a job there and she became one of his designers. Oh. And, um, and that was the first time uh, this whole notion of images on ideas. I just hadn't even thought of that. Wow, that's so interesting that yeah. that's where you were introduced to that yeah, idea. Like, you're... This is an idea. You know, <laughs> this is not a white coffee cup. This is an idea. And then I you know, did those films with Nando and uh, oh. and, uh, and then that was his idea. Then to I get jumped Armani. off. And, and, yeah. Well, when I, when I was making a film about Los Angeles, so I wanted to de-Los Angeles, Los Angeles. So I got, you know, I went to the Axis powers. I went to Germany and Italy yeah. and got some music from Germany and the look from oh, Italy. Yeah. How did you think to um, get Giorgio Moroder? It was such a good combination yeah. of that with the design. I, and I'm not quite sure how um, that happened. I'm not quite sure. But, I mean, I, I was very interested in that but that thing, I was interested in him and I was interested in Jean-Michel Jarre yeah and, and uh, what's the other one Trans Europe Express Craftwork um, uh, Craftwork right. yes so that was all in the air oh, right at that yeah. time yeah. that's cool and 
was the story an original story or was it based yeah. on something? And how, how did, I know I shouldn't <laughs> go on and on about Mary Kondo, but I just love that movie so much. And uh, Lauren Hutton, had she acted before? Uh, yes, she had one, done one thing before. Oh. Did you just know her from around? Or? Actually, uh, uh, in Sue Minger's one-woman show that Bette Midler did on mm -hmm. Broadway, she tells the story. Oh, uh, did Bette you work as, with Sue Bette as Sue. Oh, I met Sue Mengers, but I never saw the show. But did... And so she tells the story about how she has a dinner party at her house and sits me next to Lauren Hutton. Is that, that's how it happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love knowing that story. Oh, thank you. Well, so, Good. yeah, lives on. Do you have a title for your thing yet? Or does that last? Uh, no, I do, but I, I don't know if I'll ever get my script together. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that feeling. <laughs> Uh, you, you, you live here? I do. I live in the West Village. Whereabouts? Uh, Morton, near Hudson. Oh, I was just there. I was just... Near, like, uh, isn't it the local? I was at 10 Hudson this, this morning. Oh, really? Yeah. And where are you? I have a place in Chelsea, but mostly I'm up in Putnam Valley. Oh, okay. I have a lake house. Do you, do you have oh, a nice. country house? No, I still go visit my family in Napa. I know it's not yeah. that close, but... <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. The first time I was at Skywalk, this was way back then. And George, there were a handful of buildings there, you know. And George had this big book. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's a book of drawings. Okay. And it was a history of Lucas Valley. Oh, no. The very first people who came to Lucas Valley, the first shacks that were built, the first permanent building that was built, and just going through all the years, the history of Lucas Valley. And I said, wow, that's really great. I was talking to Luddy afterward. And I said, did he ever show you the book? And Tom said, he made up the book. None of it is true. Really? There was never anybody in Lucas Valley. He, he, <laughs> he invented he, the whole thing? He bought Lucas Valley and then invented a history for it. Oh, my God. I never heard that story. That's so funny. Well, thank uh, you, uh, Sophia. That's great. Uh, thank and you. Good luck. And, uh, Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate all the writing insights and excited for your well, new film. I, I think the world is ready for another Sofia Coppola film. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll try to get to it. Thanks so much for listening. Look out for episode five next month. The A24 podcast is produced by us, A24. Special thanks to Doug and Aaron at Robot Repair, who composed our theme. <laughs>